sure many of you have experienced it before. You, you've gone on vacation, and then you have those inkling thoughts in the back of your mind. Did I remember to dot, dot, dot? In fact, when I was taking Pastor Jeff to the airport, I said, I know he always thinks through those things, and he has lists upon lists that help him make sure that he remembers everything. And thankfully, when I got in the van, all the kids were there. He didn't forget a single one of them. They all made it, and they had their plane tickets, all of those, those good things. And then I asked him the very important question that I know Al Settler would also ask, and it is, did you shut off your water? Because I don't know if you've come back to a house where either the refrigerator line or the washer hose decided that week while you were gone that it was done and you came back to a flooded home. But he left it on and that was specifically so the neighbor could water the cat. Why you would do that, I don't know, but they're watering the cat. But there's many things that you could forget and sometimes when you return, you're greeted by unpleasant surprises too, right? Like, I didn't remember I left that loaf of bread uncovered on the counter. And I don't know if that's happened to you. When we lived in South Carolina, the humidity in South Carolina is a constant 120% all the time. And so often in the summers, it's even worse. I'd, I'd come into my office, and my bookshelves, with all of my books, there would be stuff growing on it. It was a black mold that's covering those books. And then, of course, you have to do all the fun remediation to try to get the pages and the covers cleaned because of all that humidity. So you might, might leave and come back to a very unpleasant surprise. Well, there's one man. This is September 1928, Alex. He had been on family vacation with his family, and he came home, and he realized that he had left something out on the counter, And he realized that in the dish he had left out, there was a little bit of mold growing in it. Except he wasn't, maybe, he didn't have the same reaction that you and I would of, ooh, gross, because Alex was a scientist. And Alex thought, wow, cool, what has happened here? And Alex actually accidentally just so happened to discover something that day, September 3rd, 1928, his full name, Alexander, and his last name, Fleming, Sir Alexander Fleming, who we now know as not really the inventor, but the discoverer of penicillin. And what is penicillin? Well, penicillin, if you look it up, is on the top of the list worldwide as the most helpful and most used drug. It's an antibacterial drug that he found out that it killed different types of diseases in the blood. And even if you dilute it up to 800 times, this mold would still take care of bacteria that was infecting the body. Before this discovery, many, many people had died of what we would think of as just simple and everyday cuts or scrapes or bruises or diseases. And yet with the discovery of penicillin, this drug now has gone on and has saved countless lives. In fact, studies and statistics show that since that first official antibiotic, it has saved penicillin over 80 million lives, and they say that 75% of people today would not be alive because your ancestors would have died. Now, that's a pretty crazy big number in my mind, but it goes to show at least the great effect and the great need, really, for this antibiotic for penicillin 
and its widespread use. In 2010, which I know is over a decade old now, over 7.3 billion units of penicillin were administered worldwide. That was more than the population, of course, at the time. In other words, yearly, penicillin is being produced more than the population of the world. We would look at that and say, wow, penicillin, mold in a petri dish, after coming home from vacation, has done a lot of good things. It's an amazing drug. It's an amazing medication. Today, I want to talk about what I would say is an even more powerful drug, an even greater drug, what I'm titling the most powerful drug on earth. And what would that be? If you, if you look at it, you could look at the bottle and you see what its effects are. This drug is one that it, it gives strength, amazing strength. It, it releases incredible heavy anxiety and burdens in your life. Th this drug, this powerful drug, it restores broken relationships. And this drug, it's so powerful actually that it's strong enough to take away consequences even up to death. And if you continue looking at the bottle, it, it, it says that there are side effects. There always are, right? The medications you take, there's always side effects. But these side effects include things like joy and hope and great relief from anguish and pain. The instructions say to, to use daily or multiple times a day or really as often as needed. And you can refill it at any time because the manufacturer has already gotten an endowment that has paid it all. So you can get as much as you want. And the name on the bottle is not just your name, it's freely distribute. You can hand this drug out on the street corners. No one will arrest you. You can give this drug away all day because you've received so much of it that there's always more that you can give. Now, I know you could say, well, many things fit that description, but the thing that I specifically am talking about today that has affected my life is this one word, and the drug is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Such a great and powerful thing and effect in our lives. What is forgiveness? If you look at the ingredients on the bottle, or we look at the biblical words, it's actually used, two words are used in the Greek language here, and they're both used by Jesus in Luke chapter 7, where it gives the story in verse 36 of the woman who came to wash Jesus' feet. And the two words that are used are forgive. You'll notice in verse 48 of Luke 7, at the end of this passage, he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven thee. And then the other idea or word that is used is in the parable that he gives, and that is the word debt, that it's a release of debt. And the idea behind the word forgiveness in the scripture, the two ideas are the idea to release a debt, and then on the positive side is to show favor through pardon. So it's to release a debt and to show favor through pardon. 
Many of you are familiar with Dave Ramsey, financial guru. At least that's what he calls himself. He has his own TV sh you know, and YouTube series, so it must say something, right? But he has this segment on his financial show that's called the debt-free scream. <laughs> Many of us have probably screamed because of being in debt. This debt is a scream because you're finally out of debt. And what is it? He has people come on and he'll interview them in, in his, the lobby of his building. And they'll give their story of, I was X number of dollars in debt. And it, it can be crazy, crazy amounts. You know, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And really, his, his advice is really simple. It's don't spend money you don't have, right? And then pay off the money that you owe and don't do anything else. It's, it's really as simple as that, except we as humans have a really hard time sometimes following that, and so we get ourselves into trouble. I realize that. But this debt-free scream, what is it? It's exuberation at finally being released. I'm no longer a slave to these debts. I'm free from this incur <laughs> that I deserved, and I've finally been able to pay it off and they literally do scream at the top of their lungs with joy and excitement. So when we look at this idea of forgiveness, we're going to look at both sides of this coin, and it's really simple. And I know it can, it can not cut deep, but it hits deep. At least it hits deep in my own heart. But it always starts with this idea. When it comes to the most powerful drug on earth, forgiveness, we're going to see that God forgives greatly. And then we turn the coin over and we see that we are to greatly forgive others. So those are the two ideas that we're going to look at today. We'll start here in Luke 7, beginning in verse 36, and seeing how God has greatly forgiven. And we're going to turn it back upon us and seeing how God has greatly forgiven us or made available this great offer of forgiveness if you don't know him as Savior. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and it says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And this is right after a lot of dialogue that the, the Pharisees had going on, and they're all debating. And so this Pharisee is like, okay, Jesus, just come eat with me. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet, to eat lunch, dinner. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a what? Sinner. What a great definition. You want to be known for one thing. Here's what you're known for. Oh, <laughs> she's a sinner. There's one thing she's really good at. It's sinning. And she knew that Jesus was at meat in the Pharisee's house and brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now, there's several accounts of a woman bringing perfume to Jesus. I One is Mary... Mary Magdalene, we, we've seen that in other passages. I believe this is a, quite possibly a different account of a different woman here in Luke. But it shows that she brought this alabaster box of ointment. And what would have this been? It would have been a stone. Alabaster would have been a stone that they would have used to create vessels to store things in. And ointment would have been something very costly and very sweet, perfume-esque. And something even that they would anoint and use in the anointing of dead people and burial. 
So you think of all the costs that go in even to a funeral today, and there's a lot of those. And this is something then that is not cheap or necessarily easy to get. And verse 38 says, And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now you look at that verse, and you say, even today, that'd be pretty crazy or radical if you saw someone doing this. How did they eat in those days? They didn't have chairs like we do and sit around the table. Often, you would actually be laying on your side in a circle around where the food is, almost at the floor. And so if you're laying on your side, that's why your feet would be behind you. So Jesus would be laying on his side there, eating with the people around him in a group. So his feet would be on the outside of the circle, and that's why this woman would be able to come up and come to the feet of Jesus. Now today, we look at feet, and they're not very uh, desirable things, right? Thinking about feet. But we're in a modern country today, right? We wear socks and shoes most of the time wherever we go. Our feet are actually fairly clean, all things considered, even though we think of them as quite gross. But you go to the time of Jesus, and what were feet like in those days? It only gets more disgusting. And Yeah, we won't go through all the details, but you think that they're walking around in sandals. They're walking around in dirt. They don't have the modern uh, sewer or sanitation systems that we do today, so that's not just dirt out there. They don't even have the modern livestock and processing facilities. So a lot of times, Bessie would be living with you, right? And, and, and whatever else, the livestock would be there. Bessie's a goat, by the way, not a cow. And, and so you're, you're living and the animals are around you and, and your feet are really exposed to all of that. And here she comes and is using her tears, weeping over the feet of Jesus, and then using her hair. Think about that for a moment. Women, I think of my wife's hair as well, long. Using that, my wife would never use her hair to clean any of our feet. In fact, we were painting yesterday, and she was trying to be careful, and was for the most part, but still got a little paint in her hair, and that was even enough to cause great concern. And that paint was clean and fresh, right? It just was in the hair where you don't want it. So what has this woman shown? She is showing great humility, great love, and she's showing great care for Jesus. Why is that? Well, it goes on to say, verse 39, now, when the Pharisees which bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, I love how it says this, and yet it's, it's tweeting it to the whole world to see. This poor Pharisee has this thought inside of him, and now it's publicly recorded thousands of years later. God is gracious to not do that with all of our thoughts, but if we were in this position, would we not have the same thought? What does he say? This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. There's that word again. So he's thinking within himself, wait a minute. Jesus, he wouldn't even let, get this. This woman is so low in the Pharisee's mind that she can't even use her tears or her own hair to wash the dirty feet of Jesus. 
In other words, you wouldn't even let her touch. Couldn't, couldn't even get near. She's such a bad person is the idea in his mind. Verse 40, And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. <laughs> Has your parents ever told you that? Or your spouse? I have somewhat to say to thee. We need to talk. <laughs> you need to listen. There's something that's really important that you're not grasping and you need to listen. And Simon said, Master, say on. And Jesus, instead of turning to the woman or the story of the woman, he instead gives this example or this illustration, a parable. He takes the story and turns it to Simon, and he poses this question, and now this question really to all of us, in verse 41 and 42. And he says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors, one owed 500 pence and the other 50. There was a zero difference, but the zero was on the end of the number. And when they had nothing to pay it, he frankly did what? Forgave them both. He released them from their debt. So tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? So you have two debts. You want someone to pay you back, right? They've borrowed money. Someone's borrowed 20 bucks. No big deal, right? Someone borrows $20,000. You probably want to see that back. But if you forgive both debts... Who's going to be more grateful? So he turns to Simon, verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, ding, 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 thou hast rightly judged. You got it correct. And he turned to the woman and said, Simon, seest thou this woman? I'd entered into thy house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I have came, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. What is Jesus showing here? He's contrasting these two people, they both know Jesus, they're both in his presence, they've both experienced some level of his ministry, but what did Simon do? He invited him over for dinner, but he didn't even do the, the normal customs of the day. The normal custom is you come into someone's house, they give you water to wash your feet. Why? Because your feet are dirty and you're coming inside, so they give you water to wash. A kiss, you're like, well, I don't want to kiss a dude. Well, I understand that, but in that time, it was more of a greeting and a way to show endearment in, a, in the right way to one another. Yet Simon had not done that either. And then going even a step above and beyond, this idea of anointing even someone's head, giving them ointment, was, was of course something they did for priests and kings uh, when, when uh, bringing them into their office. But here it's, it's just something that wasn't even considered by Simon, and yet this woman had spent expensive time and energy and money to bring this precious ointment. And notice verse 47, he's not talking to the woman at this point. He's still talking to Simon the Pharisee, and he's teaching him that this woman has loved much and been forgiven now much. And so verse 48, he's able to turn to the woman finally and say, thy sins 
are forgiven. And notice, there's no recording of what the woman says. This is the only words besides the last, the last of verse 50. Jesus just says two things to her. But she knows everything else. And everybody else does too. She's a sinner. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Verse 49, of course they have the same argument. Casey read in our scripture reading today. Who is this that forgiveth sins also? In other words, who can forgive sins? Remember what Jesus says. Is it easier to say, take up thy bed and walk? Or is it easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee? Well, we can't do either, right? I can't just heal someone that is lame, let alone forgive their sins. And what is Jesus showing by both of these? That he is God, and he has the authority and the power and the graciousness to pardon, to forgive, to release from the debt. Verse 50, and he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. What does this show us about forgiveness? Well, often as believers, I don't know about you, but sometimes we think, yeah, I know God has forgiven me, but, but I'm actually a pretty good person, pretty nice person, and uh, he didn't have to forgive that much. And so we kind of view this idea of God forgiving us kind of lightly. Yeah, Lord, I'm thankful that you forgave me and released me, but often we don't realize the magnitude or the greatness of our own indebtedness to God and what our sin debt deserved before a holy and almighty and eternal God. What does James say? Who, he who offends in, in, in one point is guilty of breaking all of the law. In other words, there's none that can stand before him righteously. So Paul in Romans, he says of those who are forgiven, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. That's Romans 4, 7. And he's, he's quoting Psalm 32, 1 and 2 that says, blessed is the one who is forgiven. What does God do with our sins? Well, Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. God has chosen to forgive his children. And I want to look at that in a little more depth of what all that means. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you would. Colossians chapter 2. And I love this passage, because it's rooted in what Christ has done for us as believers. Christ has taken your sin away. He has taken my sin away, the debt that we owed. Let's start in verse 6 of Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you for, through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him that is Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him 
through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. What is this passage talking about? Well, if you notice, I emphasize the word ye, ye, ye. This is what Christ has done for every believer. This is the great gift that Christ has given, even in salvation, that we have Christ in us, that we are complete in him, that there's nothing more powerful than Christ, and that we are secure in him, and that we've been buried with him and we're risen with him. In other words, we're dead to the old life. We don't have to serve sin anymore. We're able now to walk in a way that pleases God. God has done all of these things for us. This is the greatness of our salvation. Well, how did that happen? Verse 13. And you, me, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, made alive together with him, having what? Forgiving you all trespasses. He's forgiven it all so that we can be made alive. And verse 14 gives an illustration of that, of what really happened, blotting out the handwriting of an ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What's the picture here? What's the handwriting of ordinances? It's your list of all your debt against God. What would it look like if you took a, a roll of paper and listed and wrote down every single sin that you've ever committed? Just keep writing. <laughs> I could write for a long time, and then I'd have this the convenient sin of not remembering, right? <laughs> we don't even remember all of our own sins, do we? Sometimes, we, especially before we're saved, we don't even know all the ways we were sinning against God. And that whole handwriting of ordinances, it was, this is what you owe, this is your debt against God, all written down. And what did he do? He took that list. That it's, it's like a legal document. Some of you have legal documents of your debt, right? Your mortgage payment or that lovely credit card bill that comes in the mail every month. It's a document showing the handwriting of ordinances that are against you. That's your indebtedness. And here, the picture is every single sin all listed out. And what did he do with that? He took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. In Christ's time, they would have those legal documents too, on a sheet of parchment paper, showing how much someone owed. And when it was finally paid off, they'd put one word in the Greek at the bottom, but it simply meant this in English, paid in full. Paid in full. And that's what Christ did for you and for me. Every single sin, past, present, future, choking, taking it out of the way, paid in full, and nailing it to his cross. And he spoiled, I love verse 15, it's not that he just took it out of the way and, 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 and forgave it. In that, he spoiled principalities and powers. In other words, in his humility on the cross, he showed the ultimate great, great act of strength over all powers, because he had the power, as we've seen, to forgive sin, to forgive all 
sin. To forgive every sin. So it comes to this question, how much has God forgiven you? How much has God forgiven me? It's not usually a good thing to meditate on your sin, I realize that. But sometimes it's helpful just to think, not like the Pharisee, I've just been forgiven a little, but instead to think, like the woman, she knew she had been forgiven much. And what did that do? In her life, it made her love much. So if we realize the greatness of our own sinfulness, it makes the greatness of God's forgiveness that much bigger. Then allows even that much more love. So God forgives greatly, amazingly. But then it it comes back on us as his children. If you turn over to chapter 3 of Colossians and verse 13, God then calls us to greatly forgive others. And this, this part can be really, really hard Especially if we miss the first part. Because if we don't realize how great God has forgiven us, when it comes to forgiving others, it's almost well nigh impossible to release someone from the debt of what they did to me. What does Colossians 3 verse 13 say? It says, forbearing one another, idea of long-suffering, and forgiving one another, if any man hath a quarrel against any, How? Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. What is the call? Since God has greatly forgiven you, He's greatly forgiven me, we are to greatly forgive others. If you would turn back to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. We'll come to this passage in just a moment. I want to read in her own words someone that you probably know well. It's Corey Ten Boom. And she wrote this on forgiveness in November of 1972. She's the author of The Hiding Place that was concealing Jews during the Nazi occupation of, of Holland and then was eventually captured and sent to a concentration camp where her sister Betsy died. And later on, she's giving these talks in Germany, and this is what she writes. I was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I have come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, balmed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown, 
If we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There was never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People just stood in silence, and in silence collected their wraps, and in silence they left the room. That's when I saw him. Working his way forward against his other, the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visor cap with skull and crossbones. It came back in a rush, the, the huge room with harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail frame ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensburg concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Führerlein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know what God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fear line again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. How could he ease her t slow, terrible death simply for the asking it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. That's one person's personal experience of the pain suffered at the hands of another. And in this room, I know there are many stories, many personal stories, many real stories of pain suffered at the hands of others as well. So when it comes to this idea of forgiveness, there can be a lot of, of pain with it, and I understand. The world can be a sick place, a twisted place, a sinful place. So what are we supposed to do even in moments that Corey is describing here? Well, Christ, who knows all, the one who has forgiven us, gives this parable here in Matthew 18. And starting in verse 21, he, he addresses this question when Peter comes to him. He had just, Jesus had just finished talking or speaking of a trespassing brother and that you do need to confront sin. You can't just let sin idly go by, that if someone is not willing to repent, you take more and go to him or the whole church to confront sin, it's not just that the consequences are inexcusable or that you turn a blind eye to it, but Peter's specifically asking about the forgiving of 
the sin. Verse 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? You say, well, I know how the, where this is going, but think about it for a minute. If someone has offended you once, okay, I can forgive them. Small thing, not a big deal. They do the exact same thing again, I don't know. Seven times, seven times is a lot of times, right? Even if it's something small. So Peter really is being generous here, if we were to be honest, from a human perspective. Someone does the same thing to me seven times, and I've forgiven those seven times. That's doing pretty good, I'd say. But what does Jesus say? Verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Whoa, now it's gotten to a number that, unless you're really good, we don't keep track after this point, right? Even though we are pretty good at, at, at keeping track sometimes. And Jesus does what he did with the, the woman and Simon. He turns to a parable again to teach an important lesson. Verse 23, he says, there was, there, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king who would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. For as much as he had not to pay, the Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. What is this amount? 10,000 talents. This is an innumerable, this is millions and millions of dollars. In other words, it's not something that he could just pay back. There's no chance of this. So what's the punishment? You get sold into slavery, your wife gets sold into slavery, your children get sold into slavery. Boom. Go work and try to pay this impossible to pay off debt back. Go do that. You can try to work. Work all your life. Your whole family can work all their lives. Your children can work all their lives. And what's happening? Well, he's not getting anywhere because verse 26 says, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. What is that? That's a lie, technically. This is impossible. There's no way he can pay. But what is he asking? I just need more time. Have patience. Verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and did what? Forgave him the debt. So he releases the man from this innumerable debt, one that is impossible to pay back, one that he could have spent all of his life in indentured servitude as a slave and his wife and his family, and he still wouldn't have paid it off. And how was he released? It was a simple plea, but how was he released? The king simply said, you're forgiven. I release you. Verse 28, but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. How much does this guy owe? A hundred pence. This is something that's, I think, a few, few weeks or months. It's a debt that could be paid off. But he comes to him, and what is he doing? He's grabbing him by the throat, and he's saying, Pay me now. He's just been forgiven millions of dollars, and here he's asking for a few thousand right now from this guy. 
And his fellow servant did the exact same thing he did. He fell down at his feet, besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. That's the exact same thing this servant had just said to the king, to the Lord. But this servant, verse 30 says, and he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. How easy, easy is it to pay your debt in prison? <laughs> he just made it impossible even to get his money back. Because he's taking the guy who could have gone and worked and paid him back, and he's putting him in a prison where he can't work and now has to pay for being in prison. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and really in anguish, and they came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And then his Lord, after he had called him and said unto him, O oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And here's how Christ ends this. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespass. The call here is to greatly forgive others. This is even in the Lord's Prayer. Remember what it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I understand that sometimes forgiveness is confused with other things. Forgiveness, as we've seen, it's simply releasing someone from a debt that they owe you. You've hurt me. You've done something against me, and you're releasing them, saying, I forgive you. It's not always that simple, though, is it, right? Maybe you've forgiven someone, but those thoughts still come up over and over and over again. What do you have to do in those moments? Well, for me, it's looking back and saying, the document that was against me that I owe to God has been stamped paid in full. I stamped their document paid in full. So I'm going to remind myself, and I have to apply that in the very moment. Sometimes that's moment by moment, or in the time, or in the day. It's really asking God for the grace to remember that I've forgiven, to remember that I have been forgiven, and to be released from that. Notice also that forgiveness is not trust. In a, in a relationship, you want trust to be restored, but forgiveness is simply the releasing that person from the debt. We understand with God, <laughs> He's way more trusting of us a lot of times, and, and yet we fail him. And forgiveness is also not an excuse of others' sin. I want to make that clear as well, that there are still natural consequences and still consequences that God brings out. But where are you placing those consequences on? When we don't forgive someone, what does that look like? I'm going to get even. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to make you hurt because you hurt me, Right? But when we have forgiven, because God has forgiven us, what does it look like? I'm leaving all of that in God's hands. 
And aren't you glad that even in the midst of forgiveness, resting in the justice of God is such a sweet thing? Because God is always just, and He will make all things right. Thankfully, (laughs) our sins are under the blood of Jesus, so we don't get the wrath. But either way, God's wrath has been poured out on sin, and you're either under Jesus or you're going to experience God's wrath. In other words, God is not turning a blind eye to sin. God knows, and God will take care, and God will do justice. So when it comes to forgiving others, I want to make sure that the context is right here too. But yet the truth is very, very straightforward, very poignant, very powerful, that because Christ has forgiven us, we are to forgive others. What does that actually look like? Well, we've talked a little bit about it, but when it comes to actually forgiving others, often we look at them and say, I'll forgive you if, right? I'll forgive you if you do this or you do that. That's how we often look at it. But what does Scripture say? When I look at someone, I'm saying, I can forgive you, not because of you, I'm going to forgive you, because of what God has done for me. And so looking at someone else is really looking at myself and saying, I have been forgiven such a great debt. And realizing the debt that God has cleared and forgiven me, and then that allows me to forgive others. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have quarrel against any, Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Say forgiveness is the most powerful drug on earth because of what it does for you. If you are forgiven the debt that you owed, what joy does that bring to your heart? What peace does that give you before God? And what grace Does that allow you to have compassion towards others to forgive as well? Back to Corey Ten Boom. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had come home in Holland. I had a home in Holland for victims of of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world rebuild their lives no matter what physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. I release you. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. 
And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from that day on. But they don't. There's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age. It's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. And isn't that what the Christian walk should be about? We're going back over and over to this idea. God has forgiven me greatly. And so I can greatly forgive others. You may be here today and you say, Pastor Phil, I... I have no idea of this forgiveness that you've talked about. In other words, you have not experienced the forgiveness of Christ. And so me standing up here saying forgive others seems really really like baloney or hogwash, as they would say. And I would say it is. It's, it's really going to be impossible for you to, to forgive others unless you have experienced the true forgiveness that God has freely made available to all who will believe. And that offer is open to you right now. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. I love the story of the woman. We don't have any words from her, and yet Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And for those of us as believers, maybe just the part you needed today was the part that God greatly forgives, to rejoice in the forgiveness that God has made available to you. The great debt that you owed that you are free from. So praise God for his goodness to you. Or maybe some are struggling and you're saying, there are others I know I need to forgive, but they don't deserve it. And guess what? You would be right. But it's not based on them deserving it. It's, based, it's not based on you deserving it. It's based on what Christ has done in nailing that handwriting of ordinance to the cross, taking it out of the way, and triumphing over all principality and power. We are forgiven.